it is not even therefore conceivable that one can simply think of religion and the practice of religion as something all isolated and separate by itself. The worldly affairs, that is to say the political affairs, are part and parcel of the religious affairs. And to pretend that one can be concerned even with religious matters without taking into consideration every ramification in the political or social sphere is delusory. We are, you see, at a very peculiar moment in history. The old framework from trying to understand the evil that's abroad. Science and now we has have bigger problems than ever before. Even we are conserving literally. It's impossible to care for each other more. What must be done how we care for the overcome yet? On a rocky outcropping off the northeastern coast of England, the monastery of Lindisfarne once stood as an outpost of religious, philosophic, and intellectual study against the dark times of medieval Europe. Inspired by the foresight and dogged determination of these medieval monks, William Irwin Thompson founded the Lindisfarne Association in 1972 to gather together both scientists, scholars, artists, and contemplatives to realize a new planetary culture in the face of the political, cultural, and environmental crises of the 20th century. The Lindisfarne tapes represent some of the most visionary thinking of the time, drawing connections between culture, economics, society, and technology. While the germs of new ideas contained in these tapes are now beginning to take root, they remain an invaluable source of speculative thinking that will continue to inspire our visions of a more just and regenerative future. In this Lindisfarne lecture, Nechung Rinpoche, the Grand Lama of Nechung Monastery, speaks of the development of compassion based on the Buddhist path of enlightenment. This tape retains the Tibetan spoken by Rinpoche, vigorously translated by Robert Thurman, professor of religion at Amherst College and the translator of the holy teachings of Vimala Kirti. <laughs> Said, uh, nowadays, he said, uh, we Tibetans, having arrived here in this country of America, uh, in responding to the interest of people in America, in the Dharma, we, by the influence of the uh, different karma collected from the past by ourselves and by other people, uh, to meet with all of you here in this country, we are extremely pleased. Uh, he said, uh, nowadays, amongst the many uh, very wise and learned uh, lamas and uh, teachers who have already come, he has some story of his own he would like to tell. Uh, he said uh, the particular 
occasion of this gathering, as he understands it, is to celebrate and further the uh, spread uh, of a non-sectarian religious understanding of uh, the meeting of all different religious systems and the establishment of a bond between members of different religious traditions along the lines of the heart's essence of these traditions. And so therefore to start from the from the Tibetan Buddhist from the Buddhist Mahayana Buddhist point of view, I will begin to explain, he said, some of the system of what we call Dharma. Uh, first of all, he said, what we call Dharma or in Tibetan Ch, uh, its first meaning is just generally all noble objects. Uh, and he says, we have amongst this now, therefore, which we could translate as this basic meaning of, of dharma, which we could translate simply as phenomenon, there are two different types in the first kind of classification. Uh, those things which we do in the world, uh, in the social in the context of the social conventional reality, these are called the mundane dharma, or the mon mundane dharma. I'll stick to the word dharma since it has so many meanings. And then the second kind of dharma is the dharma which is a means of our treading the path along which we may attain perfect enlightenment. Now, why is it that we might want to attain perfect enlightenment? He said, there are various possible motives that one might imagine. But from the point of view of the Tibetan Mahayana, our primary motivation in wishing to attain enlightenment is compassion. He says to now about compassion, which is in fact the very motivation of the wish to attain enlightenment, it is not just a matter of saying, oh, let's feel compassion or have compassion. Uh, that originally is good, but it is not possible to generate true compassion, what they mean by true compassion, simply with the word. There are, in fact, many methods of generating compassion, and among them, a most famous one and the most well-used and practiced one in Tibet was called the sevenfold method of generating compassion. Uh, this is called the secret precept, or the, the oral transmitted, orally transmitted precept, uh, of the sevenfold causal chain of generating compassion. Uh, and these sevenfold steps, to list them first, uh, the first one is called Marshewa, or the recognition into mother. Literally, he will explain it, but I will first list them. The second one is called remembering of the kindness. The third one is called 
repaying of the kindness, that is the mother's kindness, the mother's and kind, plural kindness. The fourth one is called the high resolve. The fifth one, Thaksam, Dintemba Dinsua Thaksam. The next one is called compassion. Dintemba Dinsua Thaksam. The, second, the sixth one is called the expansion of mind, mind expansion. And the seventh one is called the spirit of enlightenment or the Bodhi mind. These are the seven steps or stages. Now the first step, the step of which is called recognition, literally into mother or as a mother, involves the reasoning, uh, the meditation, it is a meditative practice, and the meditation involves contemplation of the reasoning uh, that, first of all, According to our, the Tibetan belief and the Mahayana Buddhist belief, there was no beginning to the world. There is no beginning to the world. Uh, there was no first creation to the world. The world has always been going on. And uh, therefore, each of us living beings has always been being reborn and been being reborn from beginningless time. There was no first time when we were born. And therefore, we have all stood in different relationships to each other in the infinite past, in our infinite past lifetimes. And therefore, there is no sentient being, not one single sentient being, including every animal, invisible spirit, deity, dwellers in the lower regions, and so forth, who was not at one time our father and mother, who was not our father and mother. And therefore, by contemplating this reasoning and expanding it to include one's visualization of all sentient beings, occurs at this stage of, of this meditation called the recognition of all living beings as one's own mother. And uh, the, uh, now, now he said, once one has reached this stage of actual realization of all sentient beings as indistinguishable from one's own mother, then one begins to reflect upon the nature of a mother's feeling for her children. And one recognizes that even, for example, wild animals, fierce wild animals such as tigers and so forth, are always extremely kind and affectionate to their own children. And when one begins this and when one begins this in the process of meditation, uh, the sentient beings that one must first consider is one's immediate mother and father to generate the feelings of affection and love and to recall the manifestations of love and affection one received from one's own parents. First of all, 
in the steps of meditation. Uh, and how can we uh, continue and there are and when we as we meditate this there is there are certain signs that arise uh, where we which by which we can tell when we have attained this experience and he says now he returning to the to the to the to the notion of the beginninglessness of former lives, he wants to just as a side an aside here, tell the story in Tibet of a of a young child who was born in a neighbor's family and who uh, from a very early age recognized everyone else in the family and told them many stories which by which they came to know that he was previously the father in the other family. He knew all of the background and he was refer- he used to call his older neighbors as his children. And this kind of sign of the interrelationships having existed between sentient beings and former lives were very common in Tibet. What in this in in the Lugu Mangushi Jura Kasan and he said he knows that the people are interested in this because they have been asking him previously what is meant by a reincarnation or a tulku in Tibetan, uh, what is called a tulku or truly And he said that this means that a tulku or a reincarnation as distinguished from a living being who is reborn as all living beings, sentient beings are, is someone who is reborn in specific circumstances, reincarnated in specific circumstances, to be of specific benefit to sentient beings by the influence of, of their will, their previously generated willpower. He says we can recognize, you know, everyone can recognize the influence of the predilections and instincts generated in former lives in small children. This is very manifest. As it grows older, as, as we grow older, we begin to lose contact with these instincts which are left over as a residue from our experiences of our previous lives. For example, he tells another story of a boy in India who, was, uh, who he knew in Manali, who as a small boy had lived way in the mountains in a place called Manali in the Himalayas, and who without ever having seen a car as a small baby used to drive a car around the house, you know, making, at the Vimache did the pantomime. Uh, and uh, you know, make the sound of the motor and everything, whereas he had never seen a car in this particular area. Did this start with you? Such, therefore, signs he wants to illustrate 
From that time, then the stage, the next stage, which is called the stage of high resolve, or literally in Tibetan, excessive almost will, or excessive aspiration, a stage whereby one's aspiration to help others becomes almost un- intolerable or excessive. It flows out from one uh, unrestrainedly. And this is the next stage because having generated compassion, which meaning they wish to help others to, re- to save, to help them from their suffering, to, to assuage their suffering, when one cultivates this systematically, it becomes an intolerable feeling because there is so many sentient beings who have so much suffering. And this he wants to emphasize this stage to genuinely achieve this stage, it is extremely important that one's object of meditation, as one meditates these beings, one's object visualized is not simply those who are similar to one. For example, one's own family, <coughs> one's own beloved, one's own nation, one's own race, those similar to one. But those different, or even one's own species, one must visualize and meditate one's those different from one, one's enemies, uh, those to whom one is indifferent, and generate the same feeling, hold them in mind as objects of visualization until the same feelings are generated toward them as toward one's dear ones of this life. Then with this impartiality, this this compassion 
the three uh, poisons, which are the basic, basic afflictions that cause all the trouble in the world. And though they are simple things, he said, we don't, in fact, really have an understanding of how they operate and what they are normally, he said. I'm sorry, can you, can you see it? The reason that we don't understand this is that it's because we have been in the world of repeated existences, of cyclic existence, the samsara, uh, since beginningless time, uh, traveling around in different stages of existence again and again and again, always under the influence of delusion. First of these, the first and the major of the, these, which are called these three poisons. And then, once we suffer from the from the from this prime primary delusion about ourself and about our property, which consists in the delusion of the notions of adherence, habitual instinctive adherence to the notions of self and the notions of property, we then mark out, distinguish other beings who are not in accord, who don't seem to agree with our notions of self and our notions of property. They don't confirm our notions of self and our notions of our own property. And then we say, these are our enemies. And then against these enemies rises hatred and a wish to destroy them or be rid of them. And of course, uh, greed is operating right in there as, as the hatred is driving away the enemies. Greed is in there uh, raking in the property, with the operating on the basis of the false notion of property. And not only in the former lives, but even now, when we think we are awake and conscious and uh, not operating under any kind of false notions, in fact, we are as if like people who are dizzy, who are spinning, our heads are spinning by the influence of this three poisons of delusion, hatred, and greed. <laughs> Now he wants to give a story. For example, there was once a family uh, in, in Asia who had three children. Could have been anywhere. Who had three children. The three of them, they were brothers. There was a younger brother and a middle one and an older one. And then he said they were very naughty, these three boys, and they didn't listen to their parents, and one by one they wandered off to distant countries, uh, each one on their own. And so then the middle boy came to a country 
uh, he had amassed a considerable uh, wealth. He was carrying some property with him. And he found in this country a, a very large and empty house. And he went there for shelter. He thought it was quite interesting. It was a completely empty, large house. He went in there. So now he was very much worried, this little son, because he had this bag of goods, that some thief was going to come and catch and you know, steal his treasury. So he was creeping around the house very worried. And then by some chance, the elder brother came in a different door of this house, just having or happened to have arrived in this area. So then he heard the other brother coming in the other door and he came sneaking around and wacko, he hit him one. He was thinking that he was the robber after his treasure. Then the brother whacked him back. <laughs> and they had a tremendous battle, just beating each other, daylight out of each other. They sort of beat each other into a Mexican standoff, as they call it. And the darkness came, and then they kind of, they sort of each one kind of woke up, and they thought the, the older one, the middle one, thought that the thief had gone. He was breathing easily. And he was sort of shuffling around in the dark, looking for his bag, and he stumbled on his brother. And then he stumbled on. He said, "Ah, here he is again!" And he kicked him one. Then the brother jumped up and whacked him again. And out, they were at it again in the dark now. Now the younger brother came in another door. Again, the younger one came in and similarly stumbled into them, and then they all three of them were having a tremendous battle. And then they just went on all night until the dawn, just beating each other here and there. And when they saw each other in the morning, they were all wounded and bloody and bleeding, a tremendous mess. They suddenly just, the light came and they saw they were all standing there in tremendously bad shape, wounded and damaged, just finished practically all of them, all three of them. And then, 
So then that course they began to talk and they explained to each other, well, I just came here because to get out of the rain and so on, and I came from such and such a country, and I thought that that what you were a thief. And they began to casually they were so wiped out and they could also see each other who they were, and they began to discuss the thing, and they all had the same thought that each one was stealing from the other, and uh, so forth. They began to tell their history, and they finally discovered that in fact they the three of them were brothers. <laughs> Then they got they got together as well, having discovered that they were in fact brothers of one family and not the strangers and thieves and so forth. They then went on home together. And when finally, you know, they had to, it took some time to convince each other, actually, before they actually went for home, I, I jumped ahead. They, it took them a while to convince each other that they really were brothers. They had to, like, have tests and signs and proofs and discussions. They really wouldn't trust each other at first. And when they finally identified each other as being brothers, then they were able to peacefully coexist. Now, for example, he wants to apply, he says, we ourselves are just like that. He says, because here we are really of one, basically, we really are all one family, but because we don't know that and we suspect each other and we worry about this and that, we have been throughout history beating each other and destroying each other and ruining each other and depriving each other and so on because we haven't recognized that fact. He says, and then we each, for example, in, in the state of being separate nations and separate peoples, we all have different kinds of religions and dharmas, perhaps. And, uh, but he said, and in the past there have been, in fact, these dharmas, rather than being a cause of peace, have been, in fact, a cause of strife, a further beating and mutual destruction. But in fact, if we really think about it, there is no difference of good and bad. In other words, no way of ranking qualitatively different religions. And what is the reason of that? There is no such way of ranking them, because really all of religions boil down to the uh, laws or rules in, in order for people to behave virtuously, to practice virtue. And he said the, 
For instance, when, what is it now, really, if we think about it, what is it that is, that is involved in really practicing religion? Is it really being in a certain kind of a house? Is it really doing a certain kind of a, of a, of a, of a, of a thing? Is it really some, just something of that kind? Is that really what is meant by practicing religion? Hari and whether the state of the mind, the condition of the mind, is what determines any action. If one acts as properly and as beautifully and as holily as possible, and yet the mind is filled with different kinds of strange thoughts and desires and so forth, then that act is no good. If one can, in even some occasions, act badly, and yet the mind and motivation is pure, and then the action actually is pure. So therefore, the root, everything, all religious action depends Entirely For example, if people think that to practice meditation just in itself is religion, and then they sit and they make great effort even in meditating, and then, having done so, become proud, thinking, now I am so much in control of myself, and I have attained such a great stage because I have meditated. That, in fact, then is not religious practice. Yes. Once, for example, there was a hunter who went chasing a deer. And then the, the dogs who were chasing this deer reached to a certain cliff, and the deer stopped, and they had the deer at bay at the edge of this cliff. Then the hunter came and took the deer and tied it all up and had his knife and was ready to get it. And the, and the, and the deer was so upset, he was completely remained quiet like that. He just thought he was gone and he didn't which or anything just Something about the deer's expression made the hunter feel suddenly he could suddenly understand the sensibility of the deer. Uh, for once, he stepped out of his own preoccupation with his own interest, and he felt the sensibility of the deer about to feel the knife. And he suddenly thought to himself, "All this time I have been having such a, accumulating such terrible karma, killing these animals that I have been hunting, and uh, I really wouldn't like this to take place to me, and so on." And he just released the deer. Had a change of heart of mind and released the deer. And he 
he had thought he became, in fact, in this new awakened sensitivity of his uh, to other sentient beings, he became so despaired in thinking of his previous actions and how cruel and merciless he had been to sentient beings for so long. He thought, it is better, I am such a sinful person and have, uh, and have caused so much suffering, it's better that I should die, and he jumped off the cliff himself. And he died at the bottom of the cliff very painlessly, and he was immediately born in one of the different, one of the heavens of the four realms. One of the many different ones, one of the heavens of the four realms. And then he became in that in that particular heaven, which was a heaven of what they call a meditational heaven, uh, one of the Brahma Loka heavens. Uh, he meditated for many many aeons of earth time. And why, then after having meditated for many aeons in this pure heaven of the Brahmaloka, he began to feel a little proud. And how, why was it that he felt proud? The reason he felt proud was he was thinking, in my previous life I was a terrible hunter and uh, I killed many animals, but then all I did was I had just a moment's thought of compassion, and I gave away my own life, and now I'm such a great yogi and meditator, and have such fabulous control of my mind. He became proud. <laughs> then he, suddenly by the force of that pride, because he was in a state of existence of one of the meditational heavens, there are many, many such heavens in the Buddhist cosmology, which are very unstable modes of existence in the sense that they are mind-made modes of existence. From the pride, he was immediately reborn in the lower states of being and then was born as a demon. Why was that? Because when he was proud and thinking how great he was just by this single thought to be born in that heaven, he then became uh, filled with... uh, Anger and contempt, rather, at, at other sentient beings who didn't have such a good fortune as he did. So, to return to generally to say then that all of us, therefore, what is really uh, to practice religion, it is for us to work to control and to purify ourselves of these three poisons, cure ourselves of these three poisons, of delusion, greed, and hatred. And here we are in, in this conference in, in discussing the uh, non, uh, non-partisanship and non-sectarianism and the unity of all religious traditions. And uh, we are worrying about what is the way of finding concord, what is the method of bringing concord and, and cooperation and mutual uh, uh, assistance. And there's really no question that there is the main method as each of us to, to try to reduce, if not immediately eliminate, our own delusion 
hatred, and greed. And this is the unparalleled and invincible method whereby we will then obviously become able to coexist and help and come to understand one another. And he said that he was struck the other day by the discussion about monasticism and uh, the Dharma or practice of the Dharma. And he, as he understood it, it was maintained that it was necessary for really to practice Dharma for one to be within monastic framework. And he said, of course, there is a type of practice of Dharma that requires a monastic framework in a certain situation, but the Dharma can be practiced as its root is the mind in any kind of situation by anyone. The Dharma for the householder, he said, is formulated in terms of what is called the tenfold path of good actions, the abandonment of the tenfold path of bad actions, the 16 methods of purification, and a number of other such categories. <laughs> this is the dharma of the householder. This tenfold, just for an example, he's not going to give you all the classifications, but for example, the tenfold path of good actions is very systematically organized, as are all things in Buddhist teaching. And the, there are, first of all, three actions, physical actions of the body, that are to good actions of the body and bad action, corresponding bad actions to be eliminated. And that the first one is not to kill, or to literally not to take life, but to prolong life of oneself and others. The second is not to take what is not given, literally, or to steal, that is, take what is not given to one is to steal. And not to take what is not given, but to give to others. And the third one is not to uh, practice impure, or incorrect, rather, unlawful, as they put it literally, sexual relations, but only proper sexual relations. Those are the three physical actions to avoid and to practice. And to show that this is not something, is a little bit, it's somewhat, there's a certain sophistication of analysis of this process. For example, in the, uh, what does it consist of to take life? Let's consider it. We have a, it's broken down into four elements. Shiva, basic object of which one kills, Sambhava, motivation or consideration of this object, Chorwa, the application of one's efforts to the execution of the deed, and Tatu, the, the, the finishing of it by killing the person, by the person, no, actually by the person dying, the accomplishment of the deed by the actual death of the person or being. And depending on which of these, uh, depending on which, uh, which of these elements are complete or present in a particular act, the amount of, of uh, evil, evil generated is greater or lesser. For example, in a, in a typical case, the basic object might be one's enemy. And the motivation is the thought, I will going to kill him. 
And the application is nice, gun, lasso, uh, various kinds of methods. And when the person's mind is detached from the person's body, then it is complex. If these, of the three different kinds of physical action, this is the worst one. And if of these different factors, for example, only three are present, for example, one doesn't succeed, or one's mind, one's motivation was not there, but it was accidental, or uh, uh, the object disappeared, whatever, if any of them, depending on how many of these were complete, the amount of bad karma generated is, is proportional. For example, one can kill someone in a dream, but in that case, it is only the mind and the motivation, and there, in fact, is no object, no execution, and no accomplishment, and therefore, it's just a, a small amount of, of bad karma is generated. So the other three factors, three out of the four factors, were not, in fact, present. Yes. And if everyone, he says, the other, in relationship to the other kinds of action, this same kind of analysis of behavior and of the, of the action and its effect, its causal interrelationship can be made so as to have a more sophisticated awareness of one's own activity and its, and its components. Mm-hmm. Now, there are four kinds of, the next four, uh, are what are called the four verbal bad karmas and good karmas, the bad actions and good actions. The four verbal ones are to lie or not to lie and to tell the truth. Uh, not to speak harshly and to speak pleasantly. Uh, not to speak in such a way as to cause dissension among others, such as by slandering or gossiping in a malicious manner but to speak well of others and to cause concord and to make peace between people and factions and so forth. And finally, not to speak pointlessly or frivolously, but to speak in such a way as to benefit others, to bring them better knowledge or enlightenment or uh, even to repeat mantras or something, use words in a, in a positive manner. Those are the four positive and negative types of verbal actions. Now then, the final three of the ten are mental. The final three of these are mental actions. And uh, one of them is uh, malice, the wish to harm others, and uh, the consideration of how to do it and so forth, malicious mind. Uh, One of them is covetousness, the wish to have property or things of others, to uh, the consideration of how to get them and so forth. And the final one, again, which becomes in a way uh, most ra- the, the fundamental one, since it's called lokta, or false views, wrong views, wrong convictions, uh, which uh, basically have to do with, for example, you know, they say like, for example, the disbelief in the former and future life is a very basic kind of false conviction, for example, because people who do not believe in the continuity of former and future lives 
will not believe that there will be any further consequence of their action than simple extinction. Uh, and therefore, such people will never be bound by their actions by any morality. They will never be, uh, uh, they will never be subject to the, feel that they will be subject to the consequences of their actions. And therefore, they are totally unpredictable in their behavior. They are called nihilists. That's the worst kind of false view. Uh, there are other false views, such as that there, it is impossible for one to attain enlightenment, uh, and that our own state of deluded existence is the only possible one. That's another kind of false view. There are many different kinds of false views, but uh, and this false view, of course, you will recognize in those three mental actions, again, you will really basically recognize the three poisons, again, which is he originally wrote. So that is delusion is the false view, hatred is the malicious, malicious mind, and greed is the covetous mind. So again, the three poisons come into the most basic uh, ethical precepts of the, of, uh, the Dharma, Buddhist Dharma. So he says, as you can see, that the root of them is the three poisons. And he wants to emphasize the point about false views in the sense that it has become, Buddhism has, people have been interested in Buddhism. He has noticed very much from the point of view of Buddhism's psychological teachings of how to cultivate the mind and so forth. And he has noticed that very few people have a sense or an understanding that Buddhism has a very practical method of, you know, such as moral laws, which are similar to those laws of other teachings, and that those laws are extremely basic. And the disbelief in those laws, or the, the, the lack of awareness of them, and the thinking of Buddhism simply as a kind of mechanical technique of producing certain states of experience, uh, is the most serious kind of false view, because this involves one thinking that one's worldly behavior or one's ordinary behavior has no connection at all with religious behavior. And this kind of separation of the worldly behavior from the religious behavior is the way in which people justify themselves in doing all kinds of nasty things in the worldly existence. And therefore, this false view among them is the most crucial of all the false views in which I want to emphasize. And he said, of course, he doesn't mean in having mentioned particularly about false view, its relationship to one's belief about one's actions and the effects of one's actions, that one is bound to the consequences of one's actions, uh, being aware that, uh, of course, for example, belief of former and future life is, is, is something that is more or less taken for granted within, say, Buddhist cultures and in some other cultures, but also not in other cultures, at least directly or explicitly. Uh, he wants to emphasize also that even within that especially, just as much, even though there is such a verbal doctrine within the Buddhist cultures, many Buddhists have false views. False view is not something that relates to, say, being not just simply because one is not a Buddhist, one has a false views. It is not at all the case that the false view depends on one's denominational or cultural affiliations. 
And he says that, for example, this power of our previous karma, we can assign that we can tell that the consequences of our present action will always travel with us like a shadow follows, uh, follows uh, like our shadows follow us. We can tell that because here all of us from different traditions and cultures and nations have come together here and uh, sharing a certain kind of powerful wish which is precisely by the influence of our previous actions, which is this otherwise would not have occurred. Now he said, uh, having established, for example, this, uh, just or given some exemplification of the, uh, the detailed concern with which the Buddha Dharma has for worldly activity or mundane activity. He says we have to, he wants to uh, reiterate, uh, say that it is not even therefore conceivable that one can simply think of religion and the practice of religion as something all isolated and separate by itself. The worldly affairs, that is to say the political affairs, are part and parcel of the religious affairs. And to pretend that one can be concerned even with religious matters without taking into consideration every ramification in the political social sphere is delusory. Of course, he said there were people at different periods in history who can, for the time being, for the purposes of their practice, ignore the social sphere, such as Milarepa, he mentions, who spent his life high in the mountain caves meditating and basically turned away completely from the social sphere. It is possible to do that uh, as an individual within a specific frame of reference. <laughs> And what was the specific frame of reference which made it possible for someone like Milarepa to do this, to turn his back on the social sphere, as it were, for the purposes of his practice? It was that he was, the specific frame of reference was Tibet at that time in the 11th century, where <clears throat> the entire country was structured around precisely individuals practicing this type of advanced religious practice. And in a sense, the whole nation itself conceived of its function, the sort of most important part of its function as being those individuals practicing those samadhis and emanating those uh, illuminations and those uh, uh, waves of energy and so forth. And the nation, in fact, built, structured its life around those individuals being able to do that. And therefore, with those particular favorable conditions, individuals like Milarepa and some of the other great yogis of Tibet 
were able to act as if there was no need to concern themselves with society, with the so-called mundane level. One of the things about Tibet, he said, that made it particularly favorable for this kind of attitude was the fact that Tibetan life was essentially somewhat simple. And Tibet was a rather austere country where there really wasn't a great deal to do to improve life, in the sense that there were certain limits of how one could live it. Uh, you couldn't, uh, there were certain areas you simply couldn't cultivate. There were certain constraints to the countryside itself, whereby life had certain bounds to it. And therefore, people felt, well, what, you know, what, there's not such a tremendous amount of work to be done. They couldn't, there was no unlimited amount of improvements to be made, and therefore, people kind of felt, well, why should, you know, there's no sense trying to do too many things, and we might as well spend our time practicing various religious practices. Because nowadays, in relation to Tibet, he says, in, the, in our particular historical moment, people are saying that now China has arrived, the Chinese have come, Chinese soldiers have come, many Tibetan temples have been destroyed, many Tibetan monks were killed, many Tibetans had to escape to India, uh, those Tibetan monks who still practice as Tibetan monks have escaped to India or foreign countries. Uh, therefore, the religion is finished. It's destroyed. Too bad. Goodbye. And so on. No, this is not the case. This is a mistake, a little bit of a mistake. And the reason that people make this mistake is they think that temples, statues, books, monuments, and so forth, that these are the religions. These are not the religion, he says. He says these are various uh, uh, supports, uh, materials relating to the religion, but these are not the religion, not the Dharma. He says, the, these objects such as statues, books, temples, and so forth are not the Dharma. The Dharma consists of what is called the verbal and realizational Dharma. The, again, a classification is twofold. Everything gets classified. You know, in the, the classification is twofold, verbal and realizational Dharma. The verbal dharma consists of different types of disciplines as embodied in various traditions, both in texts, in books, and also in teachings. The realizational dharma consists, actually the religion therefore actually consists in people's practice, either of morality, of moral practice, such as how to behave towards one another and how to act and so on, or of mind, what they call, which means how to cultivate the mind, different states of mind, different samadhis, different dhyanas and so on, different kinds of meditation, 
and wisdom, different understand how to cultivate a profound understanding of reality and what is reality. This is the religion, this kind of actual practice in a person's behavior. Now, in addition to these things, it is true that there are there is an unbroken tradition that is handed down from person to person from the Buddha's time until now. And it would be true if, from Tibet, the bearers of these lineages, those who are the present generation's transmitters of these lineages, had been killed or destroyed or lost. But these people have not been destroyed. The central person among them is His Holiness the Dalai Lama. There are certain lamas, his two senior tutors, what are called the Yongzin, the two Yongzins, the two upholders of the lineages, uh, and plus many other lamas and, and uh, teachers who hold various traditions and lineages that descend from India of 2,500 years ago. They have come out, and they are, they are living, and they are passing on their teaching, so their transmission has not been lost either. Therefore, rather than the dharmas having been, the Tibetan teachings having been destroyed or having been lost, uh, the Tibetan teaching has, is be, being increased by the fact that it's teachers, the bearers of its lineages have been scattered abroad and are transmitting and passing on these, this knowledge and these techniques and, this, and these trainings to other beings in all countries and in all nations of the earth. And therefore, why is it that we, for example, come to foreign countries? Why is it that we uh, uh, make efforts to communicate to people in other nations and around the world? Because, he said, our wish is that these lineages, that these teachings should not decline should not disappear from the planet, that darkness should not spread, darkness of materialism should not spread universally over this planet. And it is, along, it is out, of it, out of our wish and our will that this should not take place, that we are traveling all over the place nowadays. And why is this? Why do we wish it not to decline further? Because we are considering the future. We have a grave sense and concern about the future. And we feel that if, as it seems to be the trend, that people become solely preoccupied with material improvements, with material survival, with material uh, comfort, and so forth, and all kind of, and, and uh, the mind, the spiritual uh, intentions are lost, there will be no way to save people from the ensuing mutual problems that will arise. So it is out of concern for the future and wish for the for the future not to be a dark one that we 
we make these efforts. And if we are able, he says, therefore the important thing is people's practice and people's mind and people's understanding. For if this kind of transmission and teaching is preserved in the minds and actions of sentient beings, no matter what the external situation may look like, political, geological, whatever, the seeds will always be preserved, and there will be no danger of the interruption of this, of this transmission. We have a prophecy that in, the, that in a particular time in the future, the entire world will come under the control of a kind of a demonic army, literally. And, uh, he, and, the, and the Tibetans feel that, that this time has perhaps actually, it is not that it's to be expected, it is that in a sense it has happened at this time. Because the, arm, the demonic army, what is the demonic army? The demonic army are the forces of those doesn't necessarily matter which nation or which political system, but the demonic army is the forces of those who consider only material things to be of importance, who consider that therefore control of the greatest amount of material things is of importance, and who will stop at nothing, at no weapon, at no, at no uh, destruction, whatever, to achieve therefore that kind of goal, and fear nothing because of the conviction that at their death, since they are nothing but material things themselves, there will be no consequence for their nasty behavior. And uh, therefore, the Tibetans feel that this time is actually now with us. At this, not to be expected even, but now here with us. And therefore, he likes to mention that what we discussed, what we have discussed in the past with the Native American religious leaders, uh, both with uh, 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 Thomas and uh, with Janet and with Mad Bear of the Six Nations, about uh, how in this particular time, and again, he was to stress, not a time which we expect some particular time, depending on different astrologers or medium statement, but which is now with us, which time is actually here. We are living in the middle of it. Uh, it is only this dharma, this religious, this spiritual uh, practice which will enable us to survive. And it is only those who cultivate these seeds, who bear them and uphold them, who will survive. Okay. <laughs> And he was so particularly pleased in meeting the people of this continent, of the Native Americans of this continent, in hearing that they also had this kind of belief, uh, that, uh, that at these particular times it was only these values which in fact would prove themselves more powerful than the materialist values which appear to run the world at this time. And he said, of course, he wants to stress when he always when one talks about religion and spiritual or dharma, whatever, people immediately think, oh yes, dharma means for me to go off and run, sit down, and myself I'm going to become a Buddha. 
I'm going to get enlightenment. I'm going to everything is. I'm going to find my own enlightenment. This kind of one's own self-seeking is not what he means by religion. One can be self-seeking, seeking enlightenment just as well as one can be self-seeking, seeking anything else. And therefore, uh, one's practice of uh, the Dharma, one's attainment of enlightenment, can never be separated from one's compassionate attention to the welfare of one's fellow. And both the nature of Bodhisattva path is to pursue both of these goals, one's own interest and one's own aim, simultaneously with the pursuit of the aims of others. And by such practice, and by people implementing such attitudes, this army of demons, uh, the Asura Sina, will be uh, of itself demolished, according to their understanding, prophecy. And he says, this is, uh, this is what he feels, what they call, according to their prophecies, the particular era that we are now in uh, is called the era of weapons. And it is the final era of these eras. But previous to that was the era of famine and era of plague and so forth. There were different kinds of eras. This one is era of weapons, which we can see there are weapons proliferating around, rather powerful ones. And therefore, those, of, those who wish to survive this era cannot do so by simply the wish to survive materially. The only way to survive this era is by the survival of the seed of this kind of understanding, and uh, not by scratching for one's own physical survival. And therefore, the future coming of peace and happiness to sentient beings at the conclusion of this era is that to which uh, we can take as an encouragement of our maintaining of these attitudes. He said, for example, people should understand that when one makes bombs, that uh, atom bombs, these bombs, one is making one is making them to dump them on one's own head. Therefore, everyone has to clearly realize and remember that, that there is no defense that is served. There is no positive, not one positive value of defense or, well, they have one, I should have one. Nothing, no benefit, no positive benefit that is served by the maintaining of such, such bombs or the making of such bombs. And one has to clearly contemplate when one, however indirectly, is involved in the making of such weapons, that this is really making them for the purpose of putting them on one's own head. Lotus. 
she says that, for example, in Tibet they have a saying, when you make a club, think that you are making it to hit yourself in the head with. And if, he said, if everyone tells everyone this message, at first they will not want to listen to it, but if you keep telling them this message, they will think about it. They will realize that you know, nuclear defense budget, etc., my addition, will <laughs> is is not for doesn't even serve a temporary purpose. Everybody does it because they keep thinking that this is just for the time being to stop the others from doing it. But if everybody has to realize that they only make such a weapon to destroy themselves with. And if you keep telling, he says, you keep telling everyone this, they will come to understand it when they think it over. And this is very important because now he talks about the prophecy of Shambhala, which is the prophecy of the magical country in the somewhere in the north that is invisibly hidden from humanity, ordinary human eyes, until a certain era when things have reached the point of greatest darkness, apparent greatest darkness, at which time, according to the prophecy, there will be a very violent upheaval, and the so-called army of Shambhala will arise and will put an end to the violence, violently. But he says such prophecies, the nature of such prophecies is not fixed or inalterable. Uh, one must not superstitiously attach oneself that just because so-and-so and then poking around this occult book and that occult book and the other, which is the real. Because there is no the real, because these things are flexible. And the more people who practice this kind of dharma and come to this kind of awareness and conquer these kind of poisons, the less violent such a transition period will be. And the less people that do so, then truly it will be a violent transition. And many, many, many sentient beings will be destroyed. So that, in fact, prophecies can never be used to justify apathy in the political, social, mundane sphere, no more than can any other religious thing. Because the prophecy itself is given in a way in which if you do this, this will happen. If you do that, that will happen. And that if those, therefore, the practice then develops an urgency even in the mundane level that the more expanded the light is, the light of unselfishness and compassion, uh, of enlightenment, the less violent the fulfillment of the prophecy will be, and the period of the reign of Shambhala, as it is called in the Tibetan prophecies, when happiness and peace spread about the earth, and one nation is established in the earth, uh, the transition to that will be more happy and more peaceful. <laughs> Right. 
it doesn't work, but basically concentrates on the practice of the religion. Nowadays, we work just like an ordinary system. We're totally involved in the mundane affairs. There's no way of avoiding it at this time. And that uh, uh, because we, however, we are not too distressed by this fact of uh, of uh, changing our attitudes and our habits of, of behavior or you know actions, have what kind of things we spend our time doing, because we are aware that as long as the mind, the the internal process of the dharma is continuing, the uh, uh, whatever external situations are going on, the way the country is regulated and so on, will inevitably follow in a beneficial manner. Tibet previously was in this state of uh, uh, practice of the, Buddhas, of, Buddhas, of the Dharma and maintenance of the Dharma for about uh, a over a thousand years. And therefore, and the influence, therefore, of the of its practice of dharma lasted for that long. And the prophecies that were about the present time date even from some of its earlier periods, around the 15th and 16th century, from the writings of the fifth Dalai Lama. And that's about enough to be said at this time. Thank you for listening to the Lindisfarne Tapes. This podcast is brought to you by the Schumacher Center for a New Economics. For over 40 years, the mission of the Schumacher Center has been to envision the elements of a just and regenerative global economy, apply these elements in our home region in the Berkshires in western Massachusetts, and then develop the educational programs to share our results more broadly. To learn more about our work, visit our website at www.centerforneweconomics.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or Instagram. For more podcast content, check out our Schumacher Lectures podcast. To help strengthen our mission, you can make a donation at www.centerforneweconomics.org donate.